0: Quantum physics is really weird. Particles on opposite sides of the universe can be entangled with one another, sharing properties over vast distances. Schrodinger's cat can be alive and dead at the same time until we observe it. In fact, it seems that sometimes observers are needed for properties to be defined at all. But what if a person, a conscious, living person, is the one that is being observed? Can people become entangled with one another? Or is consciousness somehow different, special? Asking questions like this are not only fun, but they can open up how we may be understanding or misunderstanding physics as a whole. This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at SparkDialog.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells stories of science and technology and how they relate to philosophy, history, culture, and how we're constantly redefining ourselves as human. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. I want to say a special thank you for all the supporters of this podcast on Patreon. If you are a supporter, look for bonus content all through this month about the fun we can have with quantum physics. If you're not a supporter and you would like to become one, just check out the Patreon page at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue, or link to it from our website at sparkdialogue.com. Thank you everyone for your support.
1: Hi, I'm Eric Cavalcanti, I am a theoretical physicist working on foundations of quantum mechanics at Griffith University in Australia.
0: Eric works in a field called experimental metaphysics. Now, I know what you're thinking. That sounds like an oxymoron.
1: So, experimental metaphysics is a term that was coined by the philosopher Abner Shimony to describe a field of research that aims to study the landscape of possible physical theories or you could say metaphysically possible theories, whether or not they are the theory that describes the actual world we live in. The aim is to study this landscape of theories both through theorems, through mathematics, and through experiments.
0: A lot of physicists may shy away from the idea of metaphysics. It seems just a bit too close to philosophy. But Eric stresses, all it means is that we're trying to see which models of the world the universe, really everything, we can rule out? And which may be possible scenarios for the world we actually do exist in?
1: A lot of physicists are afraid of the word metaphysics. And I, I think in, in this sense, in the sense of experimental metaphysics, it is best understood as about physical theories. It's the field of research that studies physical theories themselves to, to not to be thought of as mysticism or something like that. It's a a scientific, but also philosophical field of research. For the good part of the 20th century, there's been a few generations of physicists that have been averse to philosophical inquiry, averse to philosophy, because it was a period in which it was very easy to make progress in physics without thinking too much about the foundations of the theory. We had quantum mechanics, and we had relativity, which um, led to an explosion of new results and new theories and new understanding of the world. And there was a lot of development to be made, which did not necessarily require that the the, the philosophical foundations of the theories were questioned or addressed. But we are now in a period, and that's an opinion shared by, by many physicists today, in which further progress in physics does require that physicists think more carefully about the underlying, hidden, unquestioned assumptions about physical theories.
0: One way to think about experimental metaphysics, a nice analogy, if you will, compares it to Michelangelo when he carved his famous sculpture, David.
1: When Michelangelo was asked how he sculpted David, he said, I just removed everything that was not David. And so I think of the landscape of metaphysically possible theories as the raw block of marble, and the tools of experimental metaphysics are chiseled that allow us to carve some parts of that landscape to rule out conjunctions of metaphysical properties, metaphysical assumptions that do not describe the world. And the hope is that what um, we are left with Even if it's not a point, even if there's not one single theory to rule them all, one theory that gives the best description of the world, there might be still a set of theories, but um, that will form a beautiful picture showing something deep about reality.
0: Today, modern experimental metaphysics attempts to redefine our understanding of the universe and our place in it. A lot of it involves the very weird world of quantum mechanics. Or, understanding if we live in a single universe, alone in the void, or if there is indeed a host of universes out there, a blossoming out infinity, the multiverse. There are many questions that metaphysics attempts to answer.
1: Is the theory local? Causal effects, do they propagate locally? Is the theory deterministic, or is it indeterministic? Does the theory have a single space-time Or does it have a multiverse? What are the rules of causality of your theory? Is the quantum state ontic? Is it a real property of a physical system? Or is the quantum state epistemic? Does it represent information about the world or about observations an agent can make? So different interpretations or different approaches to quantum mechanics may differ with respect to many of these properties. So we cannot determine, uh, definitely at this point, Which one of these properties is true of the world? But what experimental metaphysics allows us to do is to rule out theories which have certain sets, certain conjunctions of these kinds of properties. Some of these properties cannot all be taken together to describe the world. And that is something that we can know with great certainty, both mathematically and experimentally.
0: Let's take a deeper look at one particularly interesting area of experimental metaphysics, understanding quantum mechanics. Let's say we have a particle. This particle is happily going about its business. Everything about this particle, descriptions of its energy, its angular momentum, and how it's oriented within its orbit are all encapsulated in something called the wave function. Now, we don't have a lot of everyday familiarity with electrons, so let's just do a mind experiment where we talk about the properties of something we do have familiarity with, a bouncy ball. Let's say that this big, bouncy ball behaves like a subatomic particle rather than the macroscopic object that it really is. We can describe all sorts of properties about this bouncy ball using its wave function. The wave function of our ball won't give us the exact position of the ball, but just a probability of where that ball might be. This changes, though, when we make a measurement. According to a standard textbook description of quantum mechanics, Once we observe that ball, the wave function collapses. In other words, it picks a value and settles in. Let's say we want to measure the ball's color. According to the ball's wave function, the ball could be anything from blue to yellow to red. Another property we can measure is any pattern it might have. It may have polka dots, maybe some stripes or zigzags. Now here's a subtle point. There is a certain uncertainty when you pair variables with one another. For example, you can never look at the precise position and momentum of the ball at the same time. Nature just forbids it. Let's just say in our case, we can never know the exact color it has at the exact same time that we know what pattern it has. Now, let's suppose we actually observe our ball, and we find that it's green. Now the question is, was the ball inherently green, and we just didn't know it before we measured it? And does the ball inherently have stripes, even though now we can't know this because we precisely know its color? In our macroscopic world, this is obvious. Yes, of course, the ball has an inherent color and pattern. But in the microscopic world, this may not be the case. If subatomic particles do have inherent properties, we call this the hidden variable model. It would imply that our bouncy balls have inherent properties even if we can't see them. On the other hand, perhaps the ball does not have inherent properties. This means that the ball, in some sense, decides what color and pattern it will be the moment that we measure it. This question gets to the heart of a fundamental question of reality. Is an observation a measurement needed for a bouncy ball to determine its properties? Or is the uncertainty that we see in the ball's color and pattern just because observers can never really know everything there is to know about that ball? The cool thing is, we can actually attempt to answer this question, but first we have to understand something strange about our universe, an idea called quantum entanglement.
1: An entangled state is a kind of quantum state where the quantum states of two systems, even systems that may be spatially separated and very far apart, can only be described by one single quantum state. And they do not possess individual quantum states of their own. You you may have full information about the entangled state of these two systems, but you have no information about the quantum states of the individual systems. Now, what exactly does it mean? That's, of course, the question that has been debated for for a long time. But I think one helpful way of thinking about it is that the state in, in an entangled state, the state of one system is defined relative to the other, and vice versa. But neither have a state defined relative to any external physical system. But again, that is one particular way of understanding or thinking about
0: an entangled state. In other words, if we have two entangled bouncy balls, certain properties will be the same when you look at them. But remember, for the analogy to work, we can't measure both the color and pattern at the same time. Okay, so this is a little hard to understand why this would be the case for a bouncy ball, but bear with me. Let's say we can flip a coin and choose whether to measure the color or pattern of each ball. Suppose the coin lands on heads and ball number one is measured to be green. This means that when you measure the color of ball number two, you will find it to be green as well. Or if the coin lands on tails and we measure the pattern of ball number one to have stripes, then when we measure the pattern of ball number two, you will find stripes as well. This is true no matter how far apart they are in the universe when we look at them. So far, there's nothing too mysterious about this. If we always measured the same property on both entangled balls, the best explanation for what we could see might be, then, that both balls decided to have the same color and pattern last time they were in contact. So maybe our balls were both just inherently green with stripes, and we just didn't see it until we measured it. But let's say, on the other hand, we choose what to measure by flipping two coins. We could then get four different types of correlations. Sometimes we'll measure the same property of each ball, the color of each ball, or the pattern of each ball. Sometimes we'll measure different properties, color of one ball and the pattern of another ball. And it turns out that when those are properties of an entangled pair of particles, these four different correlations, color-color, pattern-pattern, color-pattern, and pattern-color, cannot be so easily explained, as has been shown in several experiments based on the famous theorem by theoretical physicist John Bell. In
1: 1964, Bell proved a theorem which was ruling out local deterministic theories, theories in which outcomes of observations on the particles was predetermined by their local properties, and where the choice of measurement to be performed in one particle could not have an instantaneous influence on the outcome. Of the observation on a distant one. So these are local deterministic theories, also called local hidden variable models.
0: One possibility is that the balls are not inherently green. One decides to be green the moment it's measured, and somehow communicates this decision over potentially huge distances to its entangled particle instantaneously. It would seem that this information would travel faster than the speed of light, and that could be a problem for relativity.
1: One interesting thing about Bell's theorem is that it assume, the derivation of these inequalities doesn't assume anything about quantum mechanics in particular. Uh, someone coming to the lab and observing those correlations would conclude that no local deterministic theory can explain those correlations regardless of ever hearing about quantum mechanics. So that's one very interesting thing about the power of Bell's theorem. Now, so then in 1964, that's what Bell proved, that no local deterministic theory can explain
0: correlations. Here, things get confusing. Bell's theorem means that our world is not local. There are properties and interactions that are too far apart to communicate via the speed of light. Experimentally, this has been confirmed time and time again. But what does it mean? For one, can we just give up determinism, or the idea that our ball is inherently green? Or is it even cause and effect that is called into question?
1: Why not just reject determinism? We already... Have good reasons to think that, after all, quantum mechanics is not deterministic. We all showed a different theorem, which showed that, um, in fact, you don't need to assume determinism. The, the basic assumption is assumption about causality, which can be traced back to to be analogous to a work uh, done by Rahimbar, Hans Rahimbar, a philosopher, who has this principle of common cause. So, if two events are correlated and neither can be a cause of the other, then there must be a common cause such that if you know everything there is to know about the common cause, the events become uncorrelated. The common cause independently causes the two two events. Bell's theorem can be derived from this assumption about local causality. And so it's not sufficient to to reject determinism, but uh, rather it requires a more radical revision on our notions of causality itself. A modern way of deriving Bell's theorem, of understanding the implication of Bell's theorem, is that there is a there's a framework for causality, or what is now called a classical framework for causality, which has been popularized recently by Julia Pearl, and has applications in, in many different fields, from medicine to um, machine learning, epidemiology, economy, which is attempting to make sense of cause and effect relationships and to make sense of questions like, does correlation imply causation? And if you take this framework, this classical framework for causality, and on top of that you put um, the requirement of relativistic causality, that causes cannot travel faster than the speed of light, then you can derive Bell's theorem. So another way of understanding Bell's theorem is to say that the classical theory of causality should gather with the relativistic requirement for no fast-than-light causation is in contradiction with quantum mechanics. So it's not enough to just reject or give up determinism, it is the very notion of causality itself, which is our question.
0: Lovers of relativity might be squirming right now. Does this mean that faster-than-light travel exists? Do we have to throw relativity out the window? Or is there another explanation?
1: In some interpretations, it's not the case that there is a faster than light communication. In some interpretations, it is not that the distant particle has a property which is changed by the measurement on the first, but rather that the property of the second is defined relative to the first. Think of it in much the same way as Einstein's theory of relativity, where properties like positions or time or velocity are not intrinsic properties of systems, but are defined relative to a reference frame. So one way of thinking about entanglement is that one of the particles in the entangled state is a reference frame for the second and vice versa. But it's not that it has a local property that is changed by the measurement on the distant one. It is just that by performing a measurement on the second one, you are now obtaining information about this particle. And because the the state of the second is defined relative to this one, you are also obtaining information about the distant one. But in a way, they cannot be explained in terms of them having those local properties prior to that measurement having been performed. It's not enough just to allow the outcomes to be random or to be determined locally by each particle independently. If you think of the outcomes as being decided by the particles when you measure them, they are decided by the particles as a whole, as a team, rather than independently because they come out correlated in a way that cannot be explained, even in terms of the particle flipping a coin when you ask them a question. That's one way of thinking about it. Another way of thinking about it is that really the particles do have some local properties, and that a measurement here does instantaneously affect those properties at a distance one. But those, again, those are different interpretations of what's going on.
0: So far, we've just been talking about microscopic particles. We already know that the microscopic world is pretty weird anyways, thanks to quantum mechanics. But what about macroscopic objects? Can they be put into entanglement? Can they decide their properties as a team? If we ask this question, we begin to tumble down the rabbit hole of what is the true nature of our reality.
1: There is certainly a difficulty in making entangled states that are controllable uh, of increasingly larger increasingly macroscopic systems. But as far as we know, there is no in principle impossibility of making it arbitrarily large. As far as I know, it's a matter of being able to control the coherence, to isolate systems well enough, that is in principle surmountable. In fact, if arbitrarily large quantum computation is possible, and there's something called a quantum error correction theorem that shows that as long as we can make the the gates in a quantum computer Above a certain threshold of efficiency, then we should, be able, we should be able to perform arbitrarily large quantum computation. And if that's the case, then we should be able to put quantum systems, say the qubits in a quantum computer, in arbitrarily microscopic superpositions. It would just be a matter of engineering difficulty, but not an in principle impossibility. Um, however, to do that with a uh, With truly macroscopic systems rather than, say, something that is in a very controlled environment like a quantum computer, that is likely to be practically, uh, if not in principle, uh, impossible because of the difficulty in isolating an ordinary macroscopic system in the right, in appropriate ways, and the difficulty in controlling all of its degrees of freedom in the appropriate ways so that we can detect the entanglement, the superposition that's, that's involved there. There's a separate question whether, whether, in reality, physical systems are in macroscopic entangled superpositions.
0: So assuming macroscopic objects can be put into entanglement, what would happen?
1: One of the big questions whether quantum mechanics applies universally, one of the postulates of quantum mechanics, is that isolated physical systems evolve according to the Schrodinger equation. That means they evolve unitarily, It's an evolution in which the quantum state of the system, the information contained in the quantum state of the system, is preserved over time. And that happens when the system is not interacting with other systems, not interacting with the environment. And that evolution is deterministic. It leads, in general, if we apply the unitary evolution to the universe at large, it leads, in general, to entanglement across physical systems uh, in the whole universe. In general, the, the whole universe will evolve in a very large, macroscopic, entangled superposition. But even if that's the case, presumably what it would look like for for uh, observers like us within the universe is the way that it looks like. <laughs> so it's it's kind of like the question how come the Earth is round when it looks like it's flat from its surface? Well, because that's a, a flat Earth is exactly what it looks like, if you live in a very, very large ball. So what would it look like to live in a universe which evolves unitarily? Well, presumably it looks like exactly what it looks like for us, because as far as you know, we could be living in an unitarily evolving universe, and most physicists believe that the Schrodinger equation does apply universally. Another point of view would be that, no, in fact, at some point, the... The unitary uh, evolution breaks down, quantum mechanics breaks down, and we have some non-linear evolution rather than the unitary deterministic linear evolution. We would have a non-linear probabilistic evolution in which the different terms in this entangled superposition would collapse into one or another. There are different theories of this kind, which are called collapse theories, objective collapse theories. One of them uh, was proposed by Roger Penrose. He uh, proposes that it's gravity that, um, that causes the collapse of the wave function. When, when, uh, m- when suppositions are macroscopic enough, when the different terms in a superposition differ substantially by their gravitational effects, that they would objectively collapse into one or another term in that superposition rather than evolve unitarily. Recently, however, there's been an experiment just published in in Nature Physics which uh, has given experimental evidence against the simplest form of of gravitational collapse models of of the kind proposed by Penrose. There may still be more complicated models of this form, but at least the simplest one has been ruled out. So as far as we know now, the universe does evolve unitarily, which would imply that, in fact, macroscopic entanglement suppositions are the norm The question is, how can we detect them?
0: Now, it's one thing to put a bouncy ball into entanglement with another bouncy ball. But could you put a person into entanglement? An entire conscious person? Such a thought experiment was proposed by Eugene Wigner, a theoretical physicist who received a Nobel Prize for his contribution to quantum physics.
1: In any textbook of quantum mechanics, there is a Schrödinger equation which says that the systems, isolated systems evolve unitarily. And there's this other postulate which says that when you perform a measurement, um, the state of the system after the measurement collapses into one or another so-called eigenstates, the states corresponding to the outcomes of that measurement. One of the most difficult and fundamental problems in quantum mechanics is the measurement problem, which is the problem of conciliating these two different postulates, because one is a linear deterministic evolution. The other one is a probabilistic non-linear evolution. And so Wigner noticed this incompatibility and he proposed a thought experiment where he imagined a friend entering an isolated lab and performing a measurement. According to the collapse postulate, that's what we observe whenever we go to the lab and perform a quantum measurement, the French should observe one or another of the outcome of that measurement with some probability given by the rules of quantum mechanics.
0: This sounds pretty routine so far. A scientist goes into a lab and makes a measurement of a particle in an entangled system. But from the perspective of an outside observer, the scientist within the lab also enters the entangled state.
1: But from the point of view of Wigner, because this is an isolated lab, the unitary evolution of quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger equation, because it is a linear evolution, it's easy to show that the interaction between the friend and the physical system that the friend is measuring would lead, according to the unitary evolution, to an entangled superposition between the friend and the system, where this entangled superposition does not describe a situation where the friend has observed one or another outcome of probability, which is the same probability, but In a certain sense, it describes both outcomes at the same time. Now, to say both outcomes at the same time is itself a stretch of language. It is neither one nor the other. It is something else. It's a different kind of state. It's a state in which the friend and the system being observed cannot be described independently with separate quantum states. They are described by a single entangled quantum state.
0: This sounds crazy, and it is. Let's say the scientist is measuring the spin of an entangled electron. The scientist within the lab will measure that electron is either up or down. She can see that measurement with her own eyes. But her friend, just outside the lab, describes it as a superposition of states of the scientist observing the electron is both up and down. And it's only until he makes his measurement that a value is chosen. That seems, well, in a world, nuts. After all, the scientist within the lab is conscious. Why should consciousness change physics? What's so special about consciousness?
1: So for for Wigner, that was an absurd conclusion. For Wigner, once the consciousness of an observer entered the supposition, then it would necessarily collapse into one or another of the states. And for, for Wigner... That was the only point in which he could see any discontinuity that would allow for the unitary evolution to give way to the probabilistic collapse of the wave function. But most physicists disagree with Wigner's conclusion. They do not believe that the consciousness of the observer has anything to do with the collapse of the wave function. But neither do they agree on how to conciliate those different kinds of evolution. And that that is the measurement problem. And that is, in my opinion, the most important open problem in the foundations of quantum mechanics. I think, and that's, that's the opinion, for example, of uh, Roger Penrose uh, and others, that resolving this problem is a prerequisite to make sense, to conciliate quantum mechanics and general relativity to make sense of a the theory of quantum gravity. It is about general properties that physical theories may have, even if they might be very different from quantum mechanics as we know it today. And so there's some properties, some sets of properties that these theories cannot have at the same time. And it turns out that our normal theorem rules out uh, a set of properties which is a strict subset of the assumptions of Bell's theorem. So the violations of the inequalities we derive imposes strictly stronger constraints on, on, on possible physical theories than Bell's theorem does.
0: Eric and his colleagues wanted to ask the question, if you and I observe an event, can we agree on the results? Is your reality the same as my reality?
1: Bell's theorem, it shows that we cannot have a theory which is local and deterministic. And many physicists said, okay, we'll just give up determinism and we'll just keep locality. But otherwise, we can imagine that we live in a single space-time and whenever we observe the outcome of an experiment, there is a real event, that's a real fact that actually occurred and everybody can agree on. As opposed, for example to living in a multiverse, or to living in a world in which properties are relational.
0: They wanted to take Wigner's experiment one step farther.
1: Wigner considered this Wigner's friend setup, where a friend is inside this isolated lab performing an experiment. Um, Now, it does illustrate the measurement problem, but it doesn't provide a a no go theorem of a strength like Bell's theorem.
0: Eric's thought experiment goes like this. There are two sealed-off labs on opposite sides of the planet, each with an entangled particle. In one lab, Charlie observes his particle. In the other lab, Debbie observes its entangled particle.
1: So what we have done recently was to strengthen the wigner friend paradox to something that is analogous to Bell's theorem. So we consider now there's two friends inside two isolated labs, which are distant from each other. Let's call these two friends Charlie and Debbie. And Charlie and Debbie are performing measurements on pairs of entangled systems. They perform their own measurements inside this lab.
0: Up until now, this is similar to Bell's theorem, but now comes the twist.
1: Outside of the lab, there's two so-called super observers, that are replacing Wigner in the original setup, who can perform measurements upon the whole contents of the lab, including the friends and the systems that the friends are measuring.
0: These two super observers, let's call them Alice and Bob, are observing things from outside the lab. According to their perspective, Charlie and Debbie become entangled with one another after observing their particles. So
1: Charlie goes in the lab and performs a measurement on his system. And Alice now has two choices. After Charlie performs his measurement and has observed one or another, presumably, Alice has a choice to either open the lab and ask Charlie what he saw or perform a different experiment. The the interaction between Charlie and the system that Charlie is measuring is described by Alice from the outside, like Wigner did, as a unitary evolution, an evolution according to the Schrodinger Equation. And if Alice can control this evolution, she can undo that measurement in the process, erasing Charlie's memory about what he observed and perform a different measurement on the system alone. Now, you may ask the question, but even though Charlie doesn't remember what he saw, was there still a fact about what he saw inside the lab? So if we assume that there was a fact that Charlie observed one or another outcome inside the lab, we just don't know what it was... And Alice's choice of opening the lab and asking Charlie does not have an influence on what Charlie observed in the past, nor does it have an influence on what Debbie and Bob observed at a distance, then we lead to some predictions which are violated in principle by quantum mechanics. So the assumption that the observations performed by the friends inside the labs are absolute facts, and that the choices of Alice and Bob on what experiment should perform does not have an influence on the past and does not have an influence faster and light, those assumptions are in contradiction with the predictions of quantum mechanics.
0: What this all boils down to, the possibility that what is observed by anyone is an absolute fact, and that a choice made by an observer in one place doesn't affect what other observers see in the past or at a distance, is actually at an odds with quantum mechanics. Okay, well, there's one caveat. Their experiment didn't involve real people. It involved very simple observers, particles that can make their own observations.
1: The friend is the path that a photon takes in the setup. The photon, in a sense, measures a property of the photon, which is the polarization. If one takes that to be sufficient um, representation of an observer, then the inequalities have already been violated, and those assumptions cannot be used to describe the experiment. But one may hold out and ask, well, I'm not convinced. I would only be convinced if you have more complex observers, maybe perhaps observers which have consciousness, for example.
0: So maybe if we could do this experiment with you or I, the results would be different. Maybe. Unfortunately, that's something we can't experiment on just yet. But if the results are different, that would mean that there is actually something special about consciousness. So what does this all mean? Before you have a Matrix-esque moment, let's see what this really does mean for physics.
1: Why does it matter for physics itself? One way in which it matters is that it rules out certain kinds of ways of thinking about physical theory, and it helps sharpen physicists' intuitions about how to further advance physics, that some kinds of assumptions which are implicit in most physicists' minds in the way they think about physics cannot be taken together to describe the world, and that informs further development in physics. I think what what all these results are showing us is that there are serious problems in making sense of physics and making sense, therefore, of the world we live in. And in my opinion, none of the interpretations that have been proposed so far are quite there yet. There's some important shifts in understanding that we just have not made yet. When we do, many of these problems will be clarified to some extent, but it's certainly not the case, and that's what we we know for certainty, which is that this classical way of thinking about the world cannot be satisfied. The world is deeply more interesting and more complicated and harder to comprehend than our intuitions us our I, For example, the, the Many Worlds interpretation, which is a popular one, I don't think it should be taken literally. I think each interpretation has probably a grain of truth in it, but neither is the full story yet. There's still some quite radical ways of shifting our ways of thinking about the world that are required, which we haven't quite achieved yet. What I think is useful about these kinds of uh, results in experimental physics is to very sharply rule out different ways which do not work, so that we can give up certain ways of thinking about the world which have been traditionally very ingrained in our ways of thinking. So that we know for sure where we cannot stand. But uh, from what is left, I think we haven't quite latched onto the, quite the right kind of understanding. I think different interpretations have some grains of truth, and I'm particularly sympathetic to interpretations that have a relational view of reality. to think of, say, quantum states as relative, for example, the many worlds interpretation is one of them, or the relational interpretation, or quantum Bayesianism, cubism. I think they are different ways of talking about something like the same thing, but neither of them has quite captured what that is yet.
0: It also has implications for you and for me.
1: But for the general public, in terms of how do we understand ourselves and our place in the world, the picture that physics uses to describe the world can have a big influence in how we see ourselves and how we see the world and how we see our place in the world and the importance of our actions and so on. Liz Molin has made an, an interesting parallel between different physical theories of different times and the political, even and social, attitudes of people over time. So, for example, the Aristotelian view of the world with the Earth in the center of the universe, which was very well suited to a world which was a a religious monotheistic world. And then we have the Copernican view, where the earth is no longer in the center of the the world, which was paralleling um, more democratic views about social interactions and so on. So in what ways do new understandings of physics, in what ways may they influence the way we perceive ourselves, we perceive the world and political interactions more general, it's a good question to to ask. For example, in, if you have something more of a relational theory, which was one of the ways to try to accommodate these uh, these results, is to think that the world is not cannot describe in terms of individual things with individual intrinsic properties only interacting locally. Reality at large needs to be described as a whole in one way or another, whether it is By no local interactions, or whether it is by uh, something like a relational theory. So perhaps one way in in which once these kinds of ideas filter through society could be, for example, for us to see ourselves not as disconnected parts, isolated parts in a foreign world, but as uh, participating agents that cannot be isolated, that cannot be separated. From its environment and from from the rest of the world, and maybe that might have that might have influences in in how we perceive the world and how we we think of ourselves.
0: In a way, it's a nice idea. All of reality cannot be separated into parts; we must view it as a whole.
1: And a lot of work in foundations of quantum mechanics has been on people getting the patch theory or the patch interpretation and running with it, and being blind to other ways of thinking. And I think my interest in this approach of experimental metaphysics is, is precisely, yeah, it's a philosophical humbleness. It is an admission that we don't actually know what's going on. And so let's try to step uh, carefully and see what we can know with some level of certainty. And we can know some things with some level of certainty, which is the ways in which the world is not. But what the world really is, that we don't know yet. I think ultimately it may well be that there isn't a single way of looking at the world which we can achieve at the exclusion of all others. It may well be that there will be a plurality of different ways of understanding the world. But if, the, if you can understand the world in more than one way, I would say that you understand it better <laughs> than just one way. But maybe those different ways will paint different pictures of reality. And that may well be the case that, uh, maybe even, there isn't a, a matter of fact about which one is the right one, that uh, in a sense there are different equivalent ways of thinking about the world.
0: Experiments like this may really shake up what we think we know about the universe in which we live. It might make us question how much we really know about physics, and indeed, ourselves. But as Eric says, by doing experiments like these, we can begin to chip away what the universe is not, and perhaps one day begin to realize it for what it is. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or all of your podcasting platforms. And remember, if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus material coming out all throughout this month at patreon.com slash dialog I'll be back at the beginning of May with a new episode. We'll see you then. Background music that you heard were clips from I Don't Know, The Grapes of Wrath Mix by Spinning Merkaba, Seven, The New Music Remix by B. Watts featuring Alex Baroza, Unusual Travels 1, the second part by Marco Nicola, online musical journal Journey by Helix and B34 by Zekeweb featuring No Sushi. All of these songs are licensed under a Creative Commons license. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.